Welcome to For What It's Worth and the Space in Between. I'm your host, Blake Melnick. The podcast is dedicated to altering perceptions for a changing world, one mind at a time, for what it's worth. Mature trees are evocative. People around the world have a visceral reaction to big trees. And while we love trees for their aesthetic value, their shade and their importance to the wildlife habitat, as well as their role in stormwater management, we are now beginning to see the value they play in helping mitigate climate change. My guest this week was one of the founders of the Blue Box program in Toronto, one of the first major recycling initiatives in North America. In 1999, she moved on to found Tree Trust, a not-for-profit designed to maintain the valuable mature trees and communities across Ontario. Please welcome Tony Ellis. Welcome, Tony. Thanks so much for agreeing to be on the show, and I'm really interested to hear more about you and about Tree Trust. So let's begin with a little information about you. Tell me about your background and how you became interested in the environmental movement, in Tree Trust specifically. Okay. Well, um, first, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to have an opportunity to talk about trees and tree trust. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So my background is I've been long interested in the environmental world of, I guess, environmental change. And I guess I got my real start, believe it or not, in Ottawa, working as a volunteer with Pollution Probe, where we picked up fine paper for recycling using an old beat up F-150 Ford pickup truck. (laughs) And when I think about it now, this is going back into the mid-70s, and we would sail into government buildings and pick up all kinds of fine white paper and take it off to Florence paper where it would get recycled. And when I think about it now, I mean, we were probably picking up all kinds of secret documents right. that were not shredded, <laughs> walking in and out of these buildings, <laughs> looking like very scruffy hippies. But anyway, I moved from there into Toronto where I, I quickly found myself fortunately hooking up with a group of folks who were very interested in in waste management and recycling as well. And so we wound up field testing what became the blue box. So we worked in the beaches, handing out pails and talking to people about, would you be interested instead of driving to a recycling depot to actually put your bottles and cans and newspapers in these little pails. And it went really well and it morphed into, you know, the blue box that we know today. Mm -hmm. And so what that really taught me, Blake, was two things. It taught me one, that frankly, it's people who lead leaders. Because when we started that, frankly, most sort of leader type people and engineers were of the opinion that you're never going to get people to, frankly, deal with their garbage. They just want to put it in a garbage bag and set it at the curb, mm-hmm. and you're not going to convince them to bother with this. Well, of course, they do bother with it, right? They want to be part of the solution. They could see the pile of garbage and the need for landfill and so on, and they wanted to be part of the solution. So from that, I learned that, frankly, don't underestimate the power of people. And I think government kind of tends to to follow what people say they want. So that was a really big lesson for me. And it was also a wonderful environment of collaboration and helping each other and working together in this little blue box organization called IS-5. And it was the opposite of bureaucratic. We just all work collectively. And that, frankly, laid for me the groundwork of how I've approached 
everything since then. I've been very fortunate to find myself working in those kind of collaborative environments, which has been terrific. Yeah. And the Blue Box program was just incredibly innovative. I remember when it came in in Toronto, I, I may be wrong here, but it was my opinion that Toronto was the first major city to implement a, a Blue Box type program. Now thinking about it, it seems like I can't remember a time when it didn't exist. So that's how much it's uh, become part of everybody's day-to-day -day life living in Toronto. Exactly. But you exactly. know, I, when you come to other places, even where I live out in BC, the Blue Box program is just starting uh, so many years mm -hmm. later than what you were involved with in Toronto. Mm, that's interesting, eh? I think it was an, an amazing accomplishment. I mean, it's something that is held up globally as an exemplar of what's possible around recycling and making a positive impact on the environment. It's such a simple thing too, right? Right. It's really an elegant, simple solution that was very graphic. You know, you can talk about landfills all you want, but then when people actually look at what's in their blue box and they go, wow, I actually generated all that. Well, am I ever glad I'm not putting it in the landfill? <laughs> right, right, right. Of course, of course. <laughs> Yeah, it just so. makes so much sense. And you're right. I do recall when it first came in and people were thinking, oh boy, now I have to carry all my trash out to the curb and there's all these boxes. It's confusing. I think Toronto did it really, really well. As I say, out in BC where I live, it's a little bit more haphazard and a little bit more inconvenient. We don't have the large bins now for specific waste products. Um, it's There's a bunch of small little ones which you can't really fit what you need into the boxes. But, you know, it's at least starting, which I think is positive. And as you correctly pointed out, it gets people thinking about the environment and how they can do their part towards, you know, yeah, making exactly. it better. And I think that's the key. Yep. yep. And, you know, I think from that, it was always our hope that that would sort of morph into people taking other steps, you know, that that could be mm -hmm. step one. But things like, OK, maybe I should start looking at composting now, which, you know, has now become quite institutionalized with people getting, for example, green bins if they don't want to bother with their own backyard composters. Right. So we're really seeing a whole shift there, which is a really good thing and frankly long overdue. <laughs> sure. It's become part of a mindset, which I think is important. People are always thinking about it. It's good. So how does this lead us then into your involvement with Tree Trust? Okay. Well, I have to tell you, it's just making me remember one of the things that we did back in the Blue Box days was we set up recycling programs for offices and we had these fiber barrels and we put posters on the fiber barrels and I can remember using, you're making me remember this now, I forgot all about it, using, believe it or not, a letroset to letroset these trees. And they were ash trees, as I think about them, silhouettes of ash trees onto posters that went on these fiber barrels to help people make the connection between saving paper and saving trees. So I think that might have been the first time where I really started thinking about trees in a, in a more serious way. <laughs> so was your question, how did I get into tree trust? Yes, you've obviously been a, an ecologist for many years and you've explained the paper recycling. And of course, that's a product of the tree. But what was the impetus for starting tree trust? So I live in the beautiful village of Alora, which is now part of a larger blended municipality. It's got a heritage area, which is full of beautiful old majestic trees. And I run a program called Neighborwoods on the Grand, which is all about helping people plant trees, prune trees, steward trees, putting mulch on them and so on. And 
we inventory them. So we do a lot of different things related to trees. But in our work, I really started to take a critical look at the state of our big trees. And I realized that our big trees really were starting, are starting to struggle. And I think that's a universal problem across the board, frankly, for a number of reasons. You know, our big trees, particularly street trees, have all kinds of issues around road salt, soil compaction. And now we've got the emerald ash borer sweeping through, at least in Ontario, that's clearly taking out all of our ash trees. And then we've got the problem, which, again, many urban areas are facing, is this darn thing called development which is, you know, on one hand, a great thing. But then as you intensify, then you start running out of places to put trees and then developers take them out. And if they don't take them out, sometimes they will just completely ignore the root zone of the tree, which is large. It's as large as what you see above ground. And they don't really take that into consideration as they park their trucks under it or put bricks down or drive over it and frankly compact the soil to the point that the poor little roots don't have a hole. And, and of course, big trees have unfortunately don't usually die right away when they've been, you know, faced with that kind of, frankly, assault. I mean, if they've been hit with an invasive species like the emerald ash borer, it'll take them a couple of years to die. But most other trees, you can kind of uh, do, frankly, bad things to a big tree and it'll take it a long time before you make the connection between what you've done and a starting of a failure. So the thing that I think about is the fact that our big, beautiful trees tend to kind of go along and you think, oh yeah, that tree is looking pretty good. And let's face it, they don't come with what I think of as an engine warning light, right? You don't know that they need help until suddenly something bad happens to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think of our big trees as frankly part of our green infrastructure, which I think probably many of your listeners will know. There's gray infrastructure, which is roads and bridges and so on. And then the green infrastructure, which is very valuable to the overall health of the community. And it's led by the trees. The big trees are the foundation of green infrastructure. And so as a municipality thinks about, or a homeowner thinks about, I better look at the roof or gee, the the driveway needs repaving or my car needs maintenance. We need to be seeing our trees in the same way too, that they also need maintenance. As part of the uh, ecosystem, the overall ecosystem of communities in which we live. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing that's happened, so we started Tree Trust in 2019. And what's really interesting for me that's happened is a couple of things. One is when the pandemic hit, suddenly people are spending more time outside and I would say they're frankly enjoying our trees more. They're they're looking at them and they're appreciating the difference between a park with no trees versus a park full of trees when they go for a walk. And there's a lot of evidence now about forest bathing, about the physiological changes that happen in a person when they spend 15 minutes in the woods. Their blood pressure drops. They feel better. There's definitely a, a lift in spirit. People sleep better. And in fact... Here's an interesting thing that I just read, that there was a study um, done in 2015, which found that in Toronto, adding 10 more trees to a block was like the health equivalent of being seven years younger or adding $10,000 to your annual income. So tangible change for people having trees on their properties. So one of the things that we found is that while big trees are really important, in new developments, particularly, 
uh, it's hard to put new trees in because the soil tends to be compacted and compromised, which means, okay, that's a problem right there. So let's take care of the big trees we've got because there they are. They're cheerfully growing. They're obviously adapted to their environment. They're suited to the environment and they've withstood a whole bunch of whatever nature's thrown at them for the last hundred years, whether it's hurricane hazel or droughts or snow or whatever they've managed to endure. So let's give them a leg up and let's help them out. Right. Tell us a little bit more about the organization itself. And you mentioned when it was founded, but tell us about the initial vision, mission and mandate for Tree Trust. And then if you could talk a little bit about how Tree Trust operates as an entity. So if I can back up for a moment, Tree Trust is a branch. Right. Okay. I get it. I've been working an organization called the Alora Environment Center, which is a registered charity that was established here in Alora in 1993. And the Alora Environment Center has done a number of different things. And one of them is running this neighborhoods program that I mentioned. And now as an offshoot, also Tree Trust. So Tree Trust has been around for a couple of years. And frankly, in all honesty, our mission, our mission and vision really was simply to see if we could raise some money to hire qualified, highly skilled arborists to practice conservation of boriculture on selected trees that they deemed and we deemed worthy of rescuing. Mm-hmm. At the time, the model was founded on raising money, frankly, in all honesty, from people who were doing a lot of flying because in 2019, we are, we're all cheerfully flying around. Right. <laughs> And um, lots of people have to fly or want to fly because they want to go somewhere, but generally often feel a little bit concerned about the carbon footprint that comes out of flying. So we made a connection, which is on our website today, that says if you fly and you would like to make up for the carbon from flying, here's an opportunity for you to make a donation and there's a calculator that people can use. And we've been really careful, Blake, to not say this is any kind of certified program. We did not go through any kind of rigorous certification process that some of the carbon offset programs use. We simply calculated what the cost of the carbon emissions from flying is from various trips, depending on where you're going, length of flying, and then based it on a $30 a kiloton carbon generated. So it's a pretty simple way to do it and again it's really just it was designed to give people an opportunity to see some of the big trees in our community rescued so that's kind of the beauty of the program right so i know some of the airlines for example have carbon offset programs but the money goes we don't know where we're not really sure what whereas here we can say okay if you go down to mill street you're going to see the tree that either we're going to work on or we have worked on or we'll invite you to come and watch the arborist at work. So it's kind of a really cool way to see your own charitable donations at work in your own home community. I think that's super important because, you know, the carbon offset taxes, they're a little bit of a guilt tax. People say, well, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but if I pay a bit more money, then I feel better about it. But I like what you're doing because it's tangible. People can actually see where their money is going. And I'm assuming get involved as much or as little as they wish to in whatever the project is, if they find themselves particularly interested. I'm sure you're open to their help and contribution. Absolutely. So I Um, wanted to delve down into a little more specific questions. I had a chance to do some reading about Tree Trust and about 
the the benefits of old growth trees. So maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about the advantages of preserving old growth trees versus planting new ones. Okay, so I want to just clarify something with you, Blake. Mm-hmm. Old growth trees, to me, means a tree that's never been chopped down. And in BC, you are lucky to have some. We have a lot of them still. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of them still, fortunately. Here in southern Ontario, we really honestly do not. Most of the trees that are in an urban setting, I would say almost all of the trees in an urban setting that are large, were actually planted by somebody back in the day. Because it's interesting, if you look at pictures, I was looking at a historic picture of, I think it was Palmerston in Toronto, and beautiful Victorian houses on the street, but not a tree to be seen. And you look at it now, and it's a beautiful shady street. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. But even I know here in our town, the trees are gone, right? Because people didn't want the trees. It was a nuisance. They were in their way. And so they got rid of them. And then later, tree planters got busy in our town. It was actually the uh, birth of the Horticultural Society. One of the first things that they took on was getting some trees on the streetscape, going back into the late 1800s. That's a long way of saying that why are big trees important? <laughs> I guess I assumed old growth and big trees were synonymous, but thank you for correcting that. But that was my question. What are the benefits of preserving big trees versus planting new ones? Right. Okay. Well, so the big trees offer all kinds of habitat, soil erosion control. They slow storm water. There's studies that have shown that pavement on shady streets actually lasts longer because it's not the pavement's not getting hammered by that's an interesting point because the trees are intercepting it yeah Mm -hmm. and then how much oxygen the trees give off and how much shade they provide that's become a very big thing right now so some really good environmental benefits and of course the the property value you never look at a a real estate listing that doesn't mention if it's appropriate you know a nice tree lot or surrounded by trees or whatever they they really sell that as a selling property and there is a really cool website called treesaregood.com and on it is a tree benefit calculator and it's a based in the states but you can go on it and pretend you live in Maine and you'll get more or less a pretty good translation for southern Ontario and it, you type in your species that you've got the size of the tree if it's a park or where is the tree roughly speaking and it pops out with the actual annual ecological value of that tree from a stormwater point of view, from the aesthetics, from the cooling. So it's a pretty neat way to argue dollars and cents why this tree is valuable for those people who want to see an economic argument to invest in their tree or not take down a tree. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things. And then I also think, you know, there's a spiritual component to big trees and a sense of history around big trees. Maybe I'm I'm a bit of an extremist here, but I just feel like when I look at a big tree, Blake, I think somebody planted that tree, you know? It didn't just, particularly street trees, it didn't just land there. Somebody actually planted that tree. And in fact, there's a great story about a, a woodcutter at one point who told me that one time he was taking down a sugar maple and he was shocked to discover in the middle of the tree was an old iron stake that somebody had used to stake the tree way back when and the tree had grown around it. But it really was a reminder that these trees were put in with thought and care and as a gift to us, frankly. And there is a benefit to these larger trees that far exceed the benefit of planting a a new tree. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Everybody is now talking about planting little trees as the solution to carbon, our carbon woes. And it's true. The little trees are going to be great for sequestering carbon. 
but kind of the answer is they will be great. <laughs> right? right. Right. Um, the big trees, there's some, there's a calculator out there out of the States that can tell you how much carbon any given tree is sequestering. And so we've done a little calculation on the trees that we've got in our tree trust program right now. And the average is about 11 tons or so of carbon is being stored in wow. each of these big trees. And it's not just in the tree itself, it's in the branches and it's in the roots and it's in the soil around the trees. So in addition to all of the ecological values, there's just a darn well carbon argument to save these trees. And there's a study out of the States that has determined that it takes about 270 saplings to do the work of one big tree, which is not at all surprising when you compare them. And then the other thing that I know is, at least in our community, and I think this is probably not atypical, is it's getting harder and harder, frankly, to find places to plant trees. As we continue to densify and build our communities out, the places that you can plant saplings is diminishing. And add to that problem, if I can wax on about this for a minute, is that so much development now compromises the soil in such a serious way that it is really hard to get new trees growing. If you put a little street tree in and you dig out the soil and you put the tree in the soil and you've got nice mulch and compost and so forth in the soil, what's going to happen is the tree roots are never going to leave that little hole that you've built, right? So the tree's roots will girdle around the tree until it eventually kills it. The issue around finding the places where the soil is still okay, or which we're doing right now, trying to work with your municipality to change the development guidelines so that the soil will be amenable to trees in the future, is an issue. So again, it's about a tree that we've got now. Let's hang on to it if we can. So what is the criteria you use to determine if an older tree is worth saving or preserving? Right. That's a great question. So what we do is we look for specifically, ideally, a tree with social or historic or cultural significance. So that could be, and it could be the site or just something that's prominent on the landscape. Those would be our first choices. And how we decide whether or not a tree is worth, quote, investing donations into is largely the call of the arborists that we're working with. And they will look for things like, is this tree healthy enough to withstand the kind of work I have to do in it? Because often what they do is they take out a lot of the crown and they reduce the crown of the tree so the tree doesn't have to work so hard to get stuff up and down. Nutrients up, yeah. (laughs) Exactly, water nutrients, exactly. So can this tree weather the kind of work that needs to be done to it? And they look for things like, are there are there funguses on the side of the tree and what kind of funguses are they and are they bad or are they okay? So it's up to the arborist to decide if this tree is worth investing in, but we give them a list and say, okay, so here's some potential ones. Can you take a look and let us know what you think? And that's interesting. Almost any tree can be saved, whether or not you're going to love the look of it at the end of the day or whether or not it's a good investment. There are trees that you would think are not worth saving and in fact could be, but probably not under this program because we don't want to put donation dollars into a tree that's not going to really flourish right, and be around for as long as possible. But you mentioned the historical significance, and I, I 
find that very interesting because, of course, in certain communities, there are going to be these huge trees. I know where I am, we have a huge chestnut tree, very old, Mm. as well as a a series of arbutus trees, which are protected in BC. You're not allowed to cut them down. And and, and those trees reflect the age of the neighborhood uh, dating back to the turn of the century and the houses there. And to lose some of those trees would aesthetically change the, uh, the neighborhood significantly. But I gather there must be people that say, boy, this tree is so important to our community. And there's some historical reference of things that happened there or whoever planted the tree was of some note. That must be interesting to have those discussions. And I guess it's these stories that drive the decision around what trees the community would like to preserve. Yes, absolutely. And can I give you an example? Of I'd love it. Okay. So our art center here in town used to be the Allura Public School building. And going back 100 years or so or more, actually, there was a headmaster there named David Boyle, who was a luminary in our community. And he believed in getting girls to uh, learn science and math, not just needlework and other arts of that nature. And he sent his students outside into the caves at the time, the Allura Caves, to come back with various First Nations artifacts. He set up a museum at the school with some of these artifacts. And then people started sending him things like bits of coral and stuffed birds. <laughs> like back in the day when museums were just kind of showpieces for specimens. Anyway, he felt tree planting was really important. And so he ringed the perimeter of the school with sugar maples. And Sarah, there is one that's still standing. And so that was one that we picked to take care of by tree trust, because I thought, gosh, this tree's got such history, right? He put his hands on that tree and put it in the ground and it's the last surviving remnant from him. Well, that leads me into my next question. Was there a project or a particular tree that you were invested in? In other words, that you were passionate about preserving and you have a story behind that? Well, I would say that David Boyle tree, because I was involved with, frankly, rescuing that schoolhouse. So that is near and dear to my heart. But you know what? There's a tree behind my house, and it's owned by a landlord who doesn't live there. There were some issues with that tree, and he came over, and this is a case where not all arborists are the same. His arborist said, oh, take that tree down. It's not worth it. And it's probably... I don't know, 150, 160 year old sugar maple. And it's really important to me. So I wound up contributing some money so that Tree Trust could save that particular tree. And I, of course, benefit from that tree. So that's why I paid for a good chunk of taking care of it. But that was really important to me because it could have gone either way. And some of these big trees really need an advocate who's going to stand up and say, no, we, we let's look at this from a different way. And I know in BC, you guys have certainly had lots and lots of people standing up and saying, don't take down this old growth tree, right? And I feel like it's a bit of the same thing here. Like, let's save this tree if we can. But the good news is, I think the nice thing about tree trust is it is a positive story. And people do see an opportunity if they love a tree to make a case. And let's see if we can't do something for them on that tree. You mentioned something that's important. Trees are personal, and I think we all have memories of our favorite tree. I know as a boy, I can pretty much remember every tree I climbed. And there is a personal attachment that develops towards trees, which I think is actually quite fascinating. And I loved your earlier point. During the current pandemic, 
trees are becoming more important. And just being able to walk around outside, which seems to be the most common activity for most people, is long walks to save their sanity and get out into nature. And I think you're right. There's a greater appreciation for trees as a result. I wanted to talk a little bit about planning, city planning in relation to trees. Now, do you do any work with planners that are planning communities to decide what types of trees should be, not just planted new ones, of course, but the existing ones, how to actually develop around some of these old trees that maintain the tree, of course, but also add to the distinct beauty of that particular area. Do you do any work with urban planners? We don't, although that's a very cool idea. Most municipalities now, I would say, have an urban forest department or a staff person mm. on on the working for the municipality who who wears that hat. So we have not actually done that, but we will certainly come in and try to plant some trees once the development has gone through. But can I back up for two seconds? You sure can. You said mm. a minute ago um, about how people have a story. One of the things that Tree Trust has done is when the pandemic hit and suddenly airplanes stopped flying, we were looking at a significant drop in revenue and sort of how does the program work now? And we thought about tree stories to your exact point that people have a story about a tree. Often they do. And so we appeal to them to submit stories about a tree that they love and think about making a donation simply because they want to see a big tree saved. And that's actually been pretty powerful messaging. And, and in addition to that, we've added a couple other things like you can donate to op- help offset your cost of driving or heating your home. But frankly, I think right now, and possibly it's because of the pandemic, that people are donating just because, cripes, they want to see a tree in their community saved. You're probably right about that, but I I love that idea about the stories. I think that's what speaks to people when you hear those stories, when you read about somebody's experience. And again, with trees are so interesting. I can think of trees that we've tied big rope swings around and swung out over the water, and I can pretty much tell you where they all are, even (laughs) many years later. So I, I love that idea of the stories. I think that's a really good way to get your message across. Thank you. You've said you don't really do a lot of work with urban planners around trees, but From your perspective, and you've been doing this for a long time, what are some of the ways that city designs can be more friendly towards older trees? Do you have some ideas around that? Example, Mm -hmm. the Silva cells, the proper tree care, et cetera. What are your thoughts? Well, for one thing, if it's an old existing tree, then it absolutely has to be accounted for in all development planning with adequate tree protection zones around the base of the tree to protect the roots for any existing tree. And that needs to be really taken seriously. There was a tree on our main street and it had been, it had a little snow fencing around it as a tree protection zone, which had cheerfully been removed and everything was leaning right up against the, the trunk of the tree. So, and that's in part our problem because right now we don't have fines for, we don't have a bylaw, frankly, to protect our trees, but we're working on that. Anyway, protecting adequately and suitably protecting existing trees needs to be definitely accounted for and you do see developments right where there are some big trees remaining and oh my gosh what an improvement it makes to the landscape and as we are learning more and more now that if you've got a big existing tree in place 
than little trees that are in its orbit, <laughs> for lack of a better word, near its drip line will mightily benefit from the mycorrhizae activity that happens underground where the big trees send out fungus that helps inoculate the new trees and support the new saplings getting started. So big trees really help the little trees get going. So when you can hang on to some of those big trees, it'll really make a difference to new developments. And it just Which makes is- that new development look so much better. You know what it's like when you see a new development, It you look at it and you go, boy, in 10 years, this is going to be really nice. But if it had yep. some existing old trees already there and the new development accommodated those old growth trees, it makes it makes the community itself far more aesthetically appealing. Absolutely. So sure. you mentioned something, and I want to pick up on this, some sort of law to protect trees, and you said that there isn't something like that in place now. But when Tree Trust gets involved in saving a mature tree, Does that tree then become officially designated as protected going forward? You you spend all this time and money, you've got donations coming in, and you've figured out a way to preserve this beautiful old oak tree, for example. And Mm -hmm. it does it after all that's happened. Is it protected in any kind of way? Or two years down the road, can somebody just go along and say, well, I think we're going to cut this tree down? Mm -hmm. Well, that is an excellent question. So here's the long answer to that. There are municipalities that have tree protection in place, regulations in place, usually around the size of a tree. So if it's more than, say, 30 centimeters in diameter, that tree is automatically protected by a bylaw. Some municipalities are protecting specific individual trees because they are significant. So, for example, and we haven't tackled this yet, but we should request to our council that we put in place some specific provisions for any trees that have been treated by tree trusts because as you said they've had a significant investment in them and we should be hanging on to them and frankly they were deemed to be worth saving so we should be doing that and it's very interesting really how even heritage trees we have a program here in Ontario called the Ontario Heritage Tree Program and even those trees that are deemed to be really significant provincially significant trees are only protected in the city of Toronto by a bylaw amendment in that city. Nowhere else is there legal protection for those trees. It's up to each municipality to deem that tree is worth protecting. And so advocate, local advocates can, as I said earlier, can suggest, could we please protect that specific tree? I'll add that to my to-do list, okay, Blake? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's a great point. So it does require a fair bit of you know, effort by individuals to really ensure these trees are protected. And I'm surprised. I would have thought there would have been, you did mention that based on size, some of them are automatically protected. But I, I always thought there was more regulation involved. It, it always seemed to me that you couldn't just go cut down your tree, even if it was on your property. You had to file for permission to the city to do it. So I always thought it was a fairly regulated process. Yeah, well, and you know what? It's easy for a developer to go in and just take the tree out and pay the fine. Right. If there is a fine, and which the fine is never going to replace that tree. But again, we're really trying to emphasize the positive nature of tree trust. We don't want to get into, frankly, fun fights with developers. We want yes, to really of course. maintain the positive nature. And oh, the other thing is, can I just talk about how we've expanded the program? I'd love to hear about that. Okay, good. So because the program turned out to be so successful here to my surprise and delight we now have four other communities who have adopted the tree trust and we're calling 
calling them community partners, but in effect, really what they are is franchisees, for lack of a better description that people would understand. And so specific communities have adopted the model. And the beauty of it is that they get to run it as they want. They obviously take advantage of our branding and we channel our charitable donations we get given to their community. But they decide which trees they want to work on. They decide, do they want to do public trees or private trees or both? So they set their own agendas and how active they want to be. So, for example, in the town of Blue Mountains, they are very active. And in fact, they are now using Tree Trust as a springboard to start an arboretum and a tree nursery, which will, for one thing, grow some of the trees that are coming off of the two sugar maples that they've already done through Tree Trust. So that's super cool. So each community kind of decides how much they want to do. But one of the things that we're starting to look at here, like going forward, is starting to help people make a connection between the beautiful tree that you have taken care of and its role in carbon and how this can be uh, a first step in starting to take a look at your own carbon situation. So if you've helped out a big tree, maybe you'll come to the launch and maybe you'll go home with a tree that you will plant and nurture and take care of. And then maybe start looking at some other things that you could be doing around reducing your own carbon load. So we're starting to look at that too. There's, there's no end of opportunities at Tree Trust. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think that's great because from what I've been reading, these large trees are really nature's solution to climate change. Uh, the natural ability to sequester carbon in, in, in large amounts, I think that's really important. And I and I like the idea that the work that Tree Trust does is very much focused at the community level. I'm glad that you stay away from the politics and really focus on that community level, bring people that are interested or passionate about the environment and trees together. And through Tree Trust, they learn about the benefits of large trees in a variety of different ways. And I think that's fantastic. It's almost like a chain letter. You get the word out and people, one group saves one tree and another group says, hey, that's fantastic. We have a tree that we're really interested in preserving. The learning goes on. I think that's a really great approach. And to that point, one of the things that we're going to be doing this year is we're going to get some signs out. So each tree trust tree, whether it's in Stratford or Alora or Town of Blue Mountains or wherever, We'll have a little sign on it, which will have our branding, and it'll say this tree was cared for thanks to donations um, made, and there will be a QR code that people can use to find out a little bit more about the program and about that particular tree. So my big world dream is that people will, at least in southern Ontario anyway, potentially there might even be a map. It'll be like a scavenger hunt. find a tree trust tree see if you can find one in Aurora. we've got two that'd be interesting we're approaching the end of this episode you've provided a nice segue into my final questions and that's specifically about how people can get involved with tree trust first of all where can they go to find out more thank you yes so we do have a pretty great website it's called treetrust.ca and i would encourage people to hop on there it's fairly straightforward and, and um easy to navigate As I said, there are five communities in the program now. We're calling Center Wellington one of our community partners, and what I'm running is the headquarters. (laughs) I'm in charge of HQ, (laughs) which is providing the overall administrative support for the program and facilitating information exchange and so on. If people hop on there and they think this looks like something their community might be involved in, perhaps there's an existing organization there, like, I don't know, Horticultural Society or a green organization, or maybe you just want to start a little something yourself, 
great. We'd be happy to talk to you about what's possible there. And in terms of time commitment, I think that's really a question of how much time do you want to put into it? Stratford, I know, has got limited time because the three or four folks that are organizing it are all busy doing other things. So that's why they're limiting how many trees they want to do this year. Although they are expanding to include some educational stuff, which is kind of awesome. And Tree Trust in Town of Blue Mountains is doing a whole lot of other stuff too. So it's really driven by time availability and also resources that you've got to put into it. Right. And I'm assuming you're open to people that want to volunteer and do some work with Tree Trust? Absolutely. For sure. Help us find some other trees, help us spread the word. Yeah, for sure. Great. This is a very community-based program for sure. That's what I love about uh, what you've said today. I, I really like that community focus. It seems manageable for people. And I love this whole idea of trees. It's almost like a beginning. They represent growth. They represent something new and something beautiful that will flourish and last for a long time. I guess that's why we love trees. I mean, they really do (laughs) represent rejuvenation, growth, uh, endurance, and particularly coming out of this pandemic, I think this is something that people want. They can participate in something that will endure over time. Like there is something we can do, right? Yes, exactly. It's not just about melting icebergs and hungry polar bears. It's about something that we can all do. And The other thing that maybe I can just mention to you now, Blake, is that in addition to tree trust, we really encourage people who, A, want to plant a tree, excellent, make sure you're planting the right tree in the right place, B, plant as large a stature tree as you can because they offer way more environmental benefits over time, and C, if you've got a big, beautiful, majestic tree on your property, please consider taking care of it just the way you would your roof or your foundation or your driveway. It's Get a qualified arborist to go in and take a look. Don't wait for it to lose a big limb or show other signs of failure, but consider actually providing maintenance to that tree. When you phone an arborist, you might say, oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Or they might say, you know what? Let's do a little bit of work on this tree. It'll help it out. Right. Now you've you've triggered another question for me. When you decide to plant, you should pick a, a larger tree. How large a tree can you actually plant? I'm so glad you mentioned that because I use that word and I think people, it's not clear. When I say a large stature tree, what I mean by that is the tree will grow Ah, eventually to to be a bigger tree. I see so many on our streets in particular, these little fruit trees. (laughs) They're never going to be a mountain versus an oak or a maple that'll do all kinds of things for us. So that's what I mean by plant the largest stature tree. But What's really interesting, because I have this discussion with our municipality here, they like to plant the trees that are caliper trees that are bigger. They come in balls, burlap balls. And I find, frankly, from my way of thinking, oftentimes the smaller tree that comes in maybe a five-gallon pot or a 10-gallon pot even mm-hmm. actually takes hold really fast because they just acclimatize more quickly to their environment. And so in three or four years, they will likely be the same size as the bigger tree. Now you can, of course, spade in a tree, which is a very big undertaking. You'll get an instant tree. But I often think about when my kids are little, and I was thinking some people get their kids out on skates when they're three, and other people get their kids out on skates when they're six. And by the time they're eight, they're at skating at the same skill level. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Good analogy. As a final word, and I think you touched on it a little bit early on, but are there any New initiatives on the immediate horizon for Tree Trust. Expanding to new communities who are interested in bringing it to their community and looking at how we can, frankly, 
use the big treaties as an on-ramp to other climate change programming level, whatever that looks like. Great. And just for our audience sake, just like we do in all our other episodes, we will have a um, blog post up about Tony and about tree trust. So you'll be able to go and visit that and find out more information. Uh, do you have any objections to people reaching out to you directly? Can I include your contact information on the uh, blog as well? Please do. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Blake. I really appreciate your interest in this topic and your excellent questions <laughs> and giving me an opportunity to wave a flag for both tree trust and for our big trees that are something we should be taking care of. Well, my pleasure. It was really great having you on the show and I've learned a lot and I hope other people will do their own investigations into the benefits of preserving large trees and in planting large stature trees in the future. Please join us next week for an episode of The Space In Between. As many of our listeners know, we started a series called Pass the Jam. The idea behind the Pass the Jam series was to, number one, introduce our audience to new music, number two, to allow us to play a variety of recorded music from different genres on the show, and number three, to create a buzz and hopefully bring together a community of musicians that will in turn foster future collaborations. For the last month or so, we've been playing music from Ben Hunter's recently released record called Lucky for all our intros and outros to the shows. Now it's time for us to pass the jam. Next week, we will have a bit of a musical interlude. We will play full songs from Ben's record Lucky. This will be followed up with another episode in which we will have Ben Hunter on the show as a co-host to help us officially pass the jam to our next artist. And who knows, we may even provide you with a little bit of a teaser into the new music you can expect to hear on the show. For what it's worth.